It is good to be back with you. If you would open your Bibles with me to Acts 5. Acts 5. We'd like to look at Acts 5 tonight, if, we, if you would. I was listening recently to a brother on Voices for Christ, and he mentioned that Acts was a book that could be subtitled The Turmoil of Transition. The Turmoil of Transition. I thought that was an interesting subtitle. So Acts 5, if you would. Verse 1. By a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira's wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing those words, fell down, gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young man arose and wound him up, wound him up and carried him out and buried him. It was about the space of three hours after when his wife not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young man came in and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, upon as many as heard these things. And the Lord will add a blessing to the reading of his word. Now, I always wondered how they came up with chapter subdivisions or chapter divisions, but this chapter division starts with the word but. So when a chapter starts with but, it seems naturally that you'd want to know what the but was there for, what took place that made this different or made this unusual, or what the but was about. So we're going to have to look at that. So let's start with verse 32 of the previous chapter. And see what it says but for. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of land or houses sold them, and brought the pieces of the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. A few things 
to note here, the believers were of one heart and one mind. And I would suggest to you that the reason they were of one heart and of one mind was because of the things which he possessed was his own. They did not, they were not selfish. They were not self-centered. They were willing to share anything they had. It's difficult to be one mind if you're a proud person. It's difficult to be of one mind when you're, a, when you're covetous and you desire what other people have. But notice that was absent here and they were of one heart and one mind. In verse 33 then, it was with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord, the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. It was a time of great revival or great salvation among the nation of Israel as the gospel was preached. It was a tremendous time. It was a spiritual high, if you would. Notice verse 34. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold. They did not view the things that they owned as their own. They viewed them as belonging to the Lord. And they were willing to give them freely to the Lord. Sometimes when I do premarital counseling, one of the questions I like to ask is when does going to Starbucks become a spiritual issue? And I usually get very blank looks. And they almost never get it right. Because the right answer is when is Starbucks, going to Starbucks a spiritual issue is always. And why is that? Because what we have is not our own. 1 Corinthians 8 9, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, yet we through his poverty might be rich. He gave everything he had to us. And then Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians 6 70, For ye are bought with the price, therefore glorify God with your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Psalms would tell us that everything on this earth is God's. Paul would tell us that we have been bought with the price and everything we have is God's. So the correct answer is, is when you go to Starbucks, you're about ready to spend God's money. And we don't often think about that. I have an expense account with at least one of my volunteer groups. And every time I spend a dime of it, I need to justify it or explain why I spent it. And to make sure that it was spent for the right purposes and the right reasons. Now, God doesn't hold us to that tight of a rein. But the idea is, is that what we have is God's. And do we think about that and do we consider that? And do we really think that as we spend things, it's really God's money that we're spending? That he's put us in charge of it. He's given it to us to meet our needs. He's given it to us to live this life. But he hasn't given it to us to waste. He hasn't given it to us to spend as we really want to spend it. He's given it to us so that we might glorify God with it. And they got this. 
They were so enthralled with being saved that they recognized that what they had was God's. Now, I don't want anybody to be not understanding about this. I don't believe they were selling their primary houses. Because we come to chapter 12, and Mary, the mother of Mark, had a house for Peter to go to when he got out of prison. I think this was like income property. This was like their rentals. This was what they weren't using for their personal use. They were willing to sell that and give it to the church. To the point that enough of them did it, so there was no one who was lacking. There was no one who was lacking. As we know from the Gospels, that many who first believed were of the very poorest of the nation. And those who had more did not covet it, did not hold on to it, did not use it for their own use. They freely gave it. And then notice in verse 35 where they gave it. And they laid down at the apostles' feet, and the distribution was made unto every man according to that of need. They gave it to the apostles to distribute. Later on, we're going to see that the apostles pass it on to seven devout men and true, because they had better things to do than to handle money. It's amazing as you study scriptures where the Lord puts the responsibility of money. And he puts it really, really low. And Luke, he talks about the fact that if you can't handle money, you can't handle anything. Because the money is the simplest thing to handle. You want to be blessed by God? Handle his money right. Understand that it's his and handle it right. Because the scriptures say if you've given little, you will get much. That little he's talking about is the insignificance of the handling of money. Because how can he just trust you with spiritual things when you can't handle the simplest things of this life? And he presents that to us in that way. They presented it to the, uh, to the, to the apostles and laid it at their feet. Verse 36. We're now going to read about Barnabas. Barnabas is set up as an example. Barnabas is a unique example He's special because he was a Levite. Now, what do we know about Levites? Levites, according to the law, had no possessions of land. Joshua 13.33 would remind us, But unto the tribe of Levi, Moses gave not any inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance, as he said unto them. It would not appear that he even lived in Jerusalem. He was there visiting for the high holy day because he was a, from the country of Cyprus. He had probably never served as a Levite in the temple because he lived in Cyprus. And yet, here's the man that Luke would make example of us. In verse 37, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it to apostles' feet. And so here Barnabas takes this, sells his land, and brings it. Who knows how long I'd been in the family? Who knows how important it was? Who knows how much it was? But he sells it. And he sells it. Now, sometimes we think the first church was perfect. 
And sometimes we think the first church must not have had any problems because everybody was full of the Holy Spirit and everybody was of mind, one mind. Everybody was on a spiritual high. It was the greatest thing in the whole world. People were being saved right and left. And then we come to the sixth chapter, and what do we read? We read, but. The fifth chapter, and we read, but. In the midst of great victory, there was still sin. Isn't that typical of Satan? When the victory is the greatest and the fire is the hottest and souls are getting saved, what will always come in? Satan will always come in and use and tempt, and there will be sin. And how that sin is dealt with can make the difference between things continuing or things ending. And unfortunately, the history of the church is that things aren't dealt with, and it usually ends the period of spiritual prosperity. But that's not true here. That's not true here. We're told about two individuals, Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and a wife, and they sold a piece of property. As Peter would tell us, they had every right to do what they wanted with that property. They sold the property. But verse 2 tells us what the problem is. They kept back part of the price. This was a joint decision. The husband and wife conspired to keep back part of the price. But they came and they put the money at the apostles' feet and they said, here's everything we got from that land. Here's everything we were able to gain from that sale. It's all yours. That was a lie. And Peter calls them on it. Peter said unto Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of your land? We don't know why Peter knew that. Could be the Holy Spirit told him. But he knows that they're lying. He knows that it's hypocrisy in the worst form, and he calls them on it. Verse 3 tells us, but Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of the land? While it remaineth, was it not thine own? Now, it's interesting the choices God gives us. He tells us that everything we have is his. And yet he tells us it's our decision what we do with it. It's really something when you think about it. He's not standing over you with a whip. He's not standing over you with a club saying, give me that dollar, give me that dime. Now, there's some churches that do that. There's some cults particularly who want to see your income tax to make sure you're tithing the right amount. God's not like that. He wants it to be from the heart. He wants you to give because that's what you want to do. And Peter says, as long as it was yours, you could have done anything you want. Nobody was forcing you to give. And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? And you could have given a portion of it. You could have given none of it. It was still in your power after you sold it. Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? 
And then he says something really interesting, which I think is consistent throughout Scripture. He says, thou hast not lied to men, thou hast but unto God. But unto God. All right, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at some verses. Psalms 51, if you would. When I teach, I always want to make sure that I have supportive material, that I don't tell you something that I don't believe is being taught across Scripture. And this is not being taught in one place. So in Psalm 51, we have one of the two great psalms. That's David's confession after a sin with Bathsheba. I think most of us are aware of the sin with Bathsheba. And he says this in the first verse, Having mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Now, if you were to come to me and ask me who he sinned against, I would have a whole list of people. But David recognized that his sin was against God. I think sometimes we offend a brother and we go, yeah, I sinned against that brother. I better go apologize. The truth of the matter, we sinned against God. We don't always come to grips with that fact well. But we have it here in David's case that he sinned against Bathsheba, murdered her husband, and, and tried to cover it up. And a list of sins is rather not David's best moment and most likely his worst. And yet David recognizes that his sins against God. And we come back to Ananias in chapter 5, and what do we find is David says, you didn't sin against me. Yeah, you lied to me. Yeah, you deceive me. Yeah, you told me a different price than what you actually got. But your sin isn't against me. Your sin is against God. And so I have to ask myself, do I understand that when I sin, I sin against God? And why is it a sin against God? I have to ask myself that too. In David's case, David didn't trust God that God had given him everything he needed, and he coveted something that God hadn't given him. In Ananias' case, it was probably pride. Could have been covetousness. Maybe he coveted the attention that Barnabas had gotten for giving his money, and probably a fairly large sum, and he wanted equal honor for that. Maybe it was his pride drove him to be honored on the same basis. There was probably a lot of pat on the backs for Barnabas for the amount that he gave. And he wanted the same thing for himself. And he didn't trust God to honor him. It's, God tells us that those who humble themselves, God will honor in this case, we have just the opposite. He didn't humble himself. 
in hypocrisy, he presented that he was something that he was not, that he was a generous giver when he was not. And he lied to all the folks. He lied to the apostles. But Peter nails it on the head and says, you've lied not to men. You've lied to God. Now, it's an interesting concept to lie to God. Because God can see our hearts. (laughs) And God knows who we are. But you know what? We still lie to God. Stop and think about that. God sees our hearts. He knows our thoughts before we speak them. He knows our words before they're announced. And yet we still lie to him. And we still sin against him. And so Peter calls them out. And then before we move on, it'd be healthy to note that this is one of the many passages that we see that the Holy Spirit is identified as God. Notice in verse 3, and filled thy heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. And then in verse 4, thou hast not lied unto men, but they've lied unto God. And, and Luke in his writing makes it clear that the Holy Spirit and God are one and the same. That lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God. It's not our object tonight to go into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but it's always good when we run across verses that support the doctrine of the Holy Spirit that we clearly point them out, and this is one of those places. Verse 5, then. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came upon all them that heard these things. I don't know how many people were in the room. I don't know how many people were there when he confronted There were enough people that were eyewitnesses that word soon got out. They didn't have social media, and they didn't have Twitter, and they didn't have all these things that I don't have. But word got out. And there was a great fear that came upon the people. It's interesting to note that God acts in a seminal event at the beginning of things to let everyone know that he has a standard of holiness, and he sets the standard right off. Turn over to Leviticus 10, if you would. Leviticus 10. Once again, I don't want to speak out of turn. I want to be able to support what I'm telling you. So if you'll turn to Leviticus 10, we are going to look at that very issue. Rather fairly well-known passage, I would say. I don't want to speak out of turn. We're we'll going to start with verse 1 of Leviticus 10, and he says this, and, and, and Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them as censer and put fire therein and put incense therein and offered strain fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And then if we go on to read, basically they came in and swept up the ashes and took them out. That's a seminal event. 
That's an event you'd only have to witness once, and you would have a very healthy fear of the holiness of God. These two men take fire in their basins, and they take a step in their ashes. But the other thing to note here, and I think we'll see that in Acts also, is that Aaron held his peace. You know, one of the things that I've run into in the church today is it's not often that there's discipline in the church, but when there is discipline in the church, there's like a sympathy that goes out to those that are disciplined. I think we're going to see here in Acts, as we saw in Leviticus, that God's not pleased when we're in sympathy with sinners when they're judged. Some people, how can we have a loving God? He's assigned people to hell. We have a loving God who's assigned people to hell because he's told them, he's given them every way of escape and they've rejected him and rejected every way of escape and judgment will come. Our job is to be compassionate and share the gospel with everyone before that judgment comes. But once the judgment comes, God will be justified in that judgment. Let's look back at Acts and, and finish up some of this. In verse 6, and the young man arose, wound him up, and carried him out, and buried him. There's no tears. There's no time of mourning. There's no time of, oh, how terrible God is. How unjust the judgment. None of that. It was instantaneous justice, and it was just. In verse, in verse 6 of, of, of Leviticus 10, it says this, And Moses said unto Aaron, and unto Eleazar, and unto Ithamar, his sons, And cover not your heads, neither rend your clothes, lest you die, lest wrath come down upon all the people, but lest your brother and the whole house of Israel be well the burning which the Lord hath kindled. Don't mourn. This was justice. And I've been in more than one assembly where someone was disciplined and, and there was great mourning and great sorrow and great sympathy to the person who was disciplined instead of understanding that we have a holy God who judges sin and judgment must begin in the house of God. And when sin is judged, we have, until there's repentance, we must withhold in our compassion. Now, obviously, when we come to 2 Corinthians, Paul clearly instructs once there is repentance that we are to receive the person as a brother back to Christ. But until there's repentance, there can be no sorrow. And notice there's no sorrow here in Acts 5. They roll them up and take them out. Verse 7, it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what he was done, came in. Word had spread, but word had not spread to her. Not a good situation for her. And Peter answered unto her, tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. Talk about a setup question. Did you sell it for this amount like your husband claimed? And her answer was, yes, for that amount. 
And Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which has buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Tempting the Lord. If you remember back to the time during the temptations, the Lord said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. You know, when we lie, when God knows the truth, are we not tempting him? Are we not saying, judge me now if I lie? I mean, some people swear to God I'm not lying when they are, and boy, talk about tempting God. I don't want to take a step back. I don't want to get hit by the lightning bolt when it comes through. But we have a gracious God, and he doesn't judge like that. He judged once to let us know what his standard of holiness is, and then he expects us to be wise and to see that standard of holiness and understand what it is and have a right fear of that holiness. We have a gracious God. We have an extremely gracious God. I was once talking to a person, and I said, what's your, what's, it was an elder, a fellow elder of mine, I said, what's your idea of God? And he said, my idea of God is God's a man who stands there with a big stick and cracks over, my head, over the head every time I step out of line. I said, boy, I feel sorry for you because I have an extremely gracious God. I have an extremely gracious God. But when we lie, when we do whatever we want, God might be gracious and not strike us dead. But it's obvious we have no fear of his holiness. We have no fear or respect for who he is. I will tell you, one of the greatest things that kept me from sin growing up was I respected my parents. And I didn't want to give my parents a bad name, and so I didn't want to get caught doing something that was bad, because I knew if I got caught, they would end up with a bad name. It didn't matter to me. It wasn't my name I was so worried about. It was their name. And if we were as worried about the name of God, and we were making sure we were glorifying God, we would be very careful and how we did things and what we did. And we'd be careful not to sin because we'd have a conscience fear of God and who he is and the fact that we should be busy glorifying him. And when we fail to glorify him, we bring his name into disrepute. If you want to know that, just look around today and see how bad a name the church has. And that's because we have failed to glorify God. We've not been loving. We've not been compassionate. And we've not done what we're supposed to do. And people of this world thinks we're, we're religious nutcases. And it's sad when we get to that point. Sad when we get to that point. Verse 10, then fell down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost, and the young man came in and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. Instantaneous justice. We don't see that anymore, and I'm thankful. Because I might not be here if we had instantaneous justice. Like I said, we have a gracious God. He allows us to ask for forgiveness. He allows us to confess our sins. And I can't tell you except that it was for our example that these two had instantaneous justice. And then notice verse 11, and great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard those things. 
I'd be quaking in my boots. If that's a judgment for hypocrisy, I would be very careful not to be hypocritical. The thing about hypocrites is it's easy to put on a front because the people we go to church with can't see our heart. And we might have done something on Saturday night if they were aware that we were doing that, they would just be aghast. But we come to church, we break bread, we think everything's fine, we don't have a problem, put on our decent clothes, put a smile on our face, stand up or pray or give out a hymn, and everybody thinks that we're doing well. And we think we're lying to men. But God says we're lying to him when we do that. And maybe one of the problems is if we don't have this healthy fear about the holiness of God. And we somehow think we can fool God. And we absolutely, absolutely can't. Now, sin's judged. Let's go on to verse 12 and see what the result of judged sin is. In verse 12, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes of men and of women. I'll tell you what the result of Judge Sin was. We have 3,000 added on the first day. We have 5,000 added. And then we come after sin is judged, and what do we find? We find multitudes. Basically an uncountable number. I'm impressed with 3,000, and I'm really impressed with 5,000. But when it comes to multitudes, I'm just simply blown away. But sin is judged, and God blesses. I can't tell you how many churches I've been in is, well, we would discipline that brother, but we were afraid his family would leave, or we were afraid people would be unhappy. Or we, we. And there's a hundred excuses why sin is not judged. But I'll tell you, the result is, is that God cannot bless because there's unjudged sin. There's unjudged sin. Verse 15, insomuch they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on the beds and couches, and at least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. And there came also a multitude out of the cities round about in Jerusalem, bringing six folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed, every one. Talk about a spiritual high. They came in from everywhere to be healed, and the scriptures tell us that everyone who came got what they wanted. They got healing. And I don't think it was magic tricks, and I don't think it was showing off, because the Lord never did that. I think these were genuine people who believed and Hebrews would tell us that the, those gifts were given. Why? Turn over to Hebrews 2. It's always good when I write them in notes, and when I don't write them in the notes, then I have to remember where they are. Hebrews 2 and verse 3. It 
And we find this, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. If you remember Peter's preaching at Pentecost, he says that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and it was proved to you he was the Son of God by what he did. That he was approved of God. The writer of the Hebrews would tell us that the apostles were confirmed in the truth of their words because of what they did. God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Their message was confirmed because they did the works of God. We didn't have the scriptures. I believe now that the power is in the word of God. But then the message was confirmed by what they did. And people believed and were healed. And they believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, as you would know, as we, as we just briefly look at the rest of this chapter, as you would know, the high priests were not happy with all this. They'd already had one time when they arrested him. And so we read in verse 17, Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is a sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. If you don't know about the Sadducees, the Sadducees didn't believe in anything supernatural. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in anything supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They had a really tough time explaining the healing. If you remember the story of the blind man, they could not believe that the blind man was healed because no one ever had received sight that were born blind. And they said it must be a different man. Because the human mind won't accept the evidence of God. Because if you accept that there's miraculous things, you have to accept the God. It's easier to say no to the miraculous so you can continue to say no to God. And that was the case here with the Sadducees. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in a common prison. Now here comes the interesting part. You don't believe in miraculous things. You put them in prison because they're doing miraculous things and you need them to stop because all the people are going to doubt you. And notice what happens in verse 19. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go, stand and speak in the temple to the people and all the worlds of this life. They had just been arrested. They're put in a common jail. They have guards over them. And the angel of the Lord comes along and releases them. Notice what happens next. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. They had just had him arrested, and here they're back in the temple teaching. Now, what are the Sadducees and the high priests supposed to think? We put those men in jail. What are they doing here preaching? And the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together, and all of the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the president to have them brought. And when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and said, told, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keepers standing without before the doors, but when we had opened, we found no man there. I can just see it. These guys are back preaching, who let them out? Let's have an investigation. What's happening? Who let them out? And the captain of the prison comes and says, have no explanation. The guards are in place. The doors are locked. They should be in the cell. We don't know what happened. 
Now, you're a Sadducee, and you don't believe in anything miraculous, and now you have these guys who were in prison miraculously are no longer in prison, and what do you say now? Notice what happens next. And now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them, whereupon this would grow. Now what? These guys are doing some really strange things. They have powers which we cannot explain. This is not a good situation. We're trying to stomp this thing out, and it's just getting bigger and bigger. We've had some wildfires come through Southern California, and I tell you, it must be very frustrating as a firefighter to face a wildfire that's totally out of control, and there's not a lot you can do about it. They're staring at a wildfire, and they don't know what to do about it. Verse 25, then came one and told them, behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. Then when the captain with the officers brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set before the council and the high priest asked them. So they go arrest them again. Didn't work the first time, but go arrest them again. Bring them to us. But bring them without violence because, boy, we don't know what's going to happen. The multitude's against us. If you make a wrong step, if you offend anybody, if, you, if people think you're mistreating them, who knows what the multitude will do because the tide had turned. Verse 28, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in the name, in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. There's two things here that are important. Number one, they were preaching in the name of Jesus. And they had been instructed not to teach in that name. And they continued to teach and souls continued to get saved. The second thing we want to know they filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Wouldn't it be great to fill a city with the doctrine of Jesus Christ? They did it. They did it. The blessings were so great that the word and the, and, and the knowledge of Jesus Christ had filled the city. It's no wonder multitudes were saved. It's no wonder multitudes were coming from the surrounding areas. Because word was out and then notice and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. The Lord Jesus, Stephen, they all said, it's you. By your wicked hands have crucified the Lord. They placed the blame squarely on the religious leaders of the time. And this high priest knows that's where they were placing the blame. And so one of their fears is they were going to be blamed that this, this just man had been crucified. This innocent man had been crucified, and it was their fault. They tried to pass it over onto the Romans, but no one was being fooled by that. And so they're fearful. They're fearful that they're going to be held accountable for crucifying Israel's Messiah. And that might have been their greatest fear. Verse 30, 29, then Peter and other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. I think this verse is often used as an excuse by some Christians. But they're not going to stop preaching Jesus Christ. And I don't think there's ever going to be a time where I would stop preaching Jesus Christ. We might come to a time in our country where you might go to jail for preaching Jesus Christ. And if that's true, I'm still going to preach Jesus Christ. 
But the scripture also clearly tells us we're to honor our king and obey our government. We need to be very careful that we're disobeying for the right reasons. And then notice what he says in verse 31, uh, 30. And the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. God has vindicated his death because he's returned him from the dead. You thought you'd finished him by killing him on a cross. He's alive. That was the message of the New Testament church that turned people around. Through death, Jesus Christ had conquered death. And there was no longer a need to fear death. He was alive. He was alive. Verse 31. Him hath God exalted in his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. When Jesus Christ was on trial, what did he say? He said that you will see me returning and sitting at the right hand of God. And they rent their clothes because they said, no way you're ever going to be in God's presence. No way you're going to sit in God's presence because the only person who would possibly sit in God's presence is God himself. Anybody who isn't God has to bow in God's presence. But notice what he says. Him hath, God highly exalt, him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He's sitting at the right hand of God. David said in Psalms 110, he would sit at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ proclaimed to you that very message, that he would sit at the right hand of God. And I'm telling you, he is now sitting at the right hand of God. If I had been those high priests, I would have been quaking in my boots, but typical of men... That's not what they do. There's no repentance. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost whom God has given to them that obey him. You've seen it. You've seen the power we have. We are confirmed in our message because we are doing the acts of God. Verse 33, and when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Just like Pharaoh hardened his heart, these high priests hardened their hearts. They're cut to the heart. And what do they do? They harden that heart. And they reject the message. And they want to slay the messenger. They don't understand. They've rejected and said no to God. And because they've said no to God, they want to say no to the messenger. And they want to end the message by death. The only method of silence that they could come. Prison didn't work. Threats didn't work. The only thing they could think of to silence the message was to kill them. And at that time, if you read on, a gentleman by the name of Gamaliel steps forward. And he said this in verse 35. You men of Israel, take heed to yourselves that you indeed do to do as touching these men. He recounts the history of other rebellions that have risen up and their leaders had been killed and the, and the rebellion had ceased and had fallen apart. And often without the leader, nothing ever happens. And so here's his advice in verse 38. Now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone, for the counsel of this work be of men, it will come to naught. Amazing words. And it's always true. You know, if something's a man, it won't go very far. Sometimes we get this urgency to squash something. Well, I'll tell you, it's true. If it's of men, it won't go anyway. 
We should always stand for the truth, but we don't need to go around stomping out every little fire because if it's of men, it won't go anywhere. But notice what he says. Verse 39, but if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest happily you be found even to fight against God. There was never more true words. If it's of God, you can't stop it anyway. It's amazing. If it's of God, it will run because God will build his church. Ultimately, God's in control. The reason why we can be meek and humble is because God's in control. The reason we can rest assured that God will get his work accomplished is because he's promised it. It's a little bit like Esther. He would love to use us to build his church. But he's not dependent on us to build his church. He will build his church. Verse 40, and to him that they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. I wish I could always respond like this, because I would tell you, if I was beaten, I don't think this would be my response in the next two verses. And they parted from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I, you know, I think there's times that we don't witness because we're not worthy or we don't feel ourselves worthy to suffer shame for his name we're afraid to tell someone about jesus christ because they might spit on us might slam the door in their face might turn on us might stop being our friends but i want to tell you this was not true of these disciples if you go on and read paul paul suffered greatly and he did so because of how Christ had suffered for him. And it says, And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I will tell you that's not true of me. I wish it was. And I wish I was always successful at that. But I don't rejoice, and I don't often count myself worthy to suffer shame for his name. It should be true. He's done everything for me. I should be willing to suffer shame. Amazing thing about Philippians 2 is that he suffered shame for me. And I have to ask myself, so why is it such a big thing if I suffer shame for him? And sometimes there's head knowledge and sometimes there's heart knowledge and sometimes it takes a long time to go from the head knowledge to the heart knowledge. I'm an old man, but it's still working that's way down to the heart knowledge. Verse 42, and daily in the temple in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Imprisonment, threats, beatings, nothing stopped them. They ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. You study the New Testament church, there's two times that there's huge conflicts in the church, and both involved money, and yet we're told money is the least of things. Isn't it amazing that we can't handle the little things? And Satan can use the little things. The verse says the little foxes spoil the vines. God uses, Satan uses the little things to spoil the work of God. May, may we not allow the little things 
to spoil the work of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight and we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who is gracious. And yet, Father, we would be ever mindful that you have set your standard of holiness. And while you don't instantaneously judge us and you don't instantaneously hold us accountable for our sin, your feelings towards sin has not changed. And hypocrisy is still something that's a sin against you and lying's a sin against you and pride's a sin against you. And yet, Father, we just are able to fool ourselves and to trick our minds into thinking when we sin that we're not sinning against you. Father, help us as we read a passage like this to understand your holiness. Help us, Father, to have the right kind of fear in that holiness so that we might serve a gracious God from a loving heart. Willingly, Father, making those sacrifices that we find so difficult. Being of one heart and one mind so that the Spirit of God might work in us and through us for victory like they had in the early church. May, Father, you've told us that you've given us that power, that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead that you've given to us, and yet, Father, we would readily admit that we make very use very little use of that power. So, Father, teach us what it means to serve with a clean hands and a pure heart so that we might be used by you for great things in your kingdom to be glory, to bring glory to the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.